Exodus chapter 33, I want to take you back to that passage that we read just earlier on and simply entitle it, Moses Praying. Moses Praying. Let's just seek the Lord as we come to the preaching of God's Word. Lord, we thank Thee for Thy help given already this morning. We thank the Lord for these hymns and psalms have been singing. Lord, we would make it our prayer more about Jesus. Would I know, O God, more of His fullness to others show. We pray, Lord, that thou would teach us this morning by thy Spirit. Give us help, Lord, as we come to this passage. Give us understanding. O God, bring us, Lord, even as it were, into this tent of the congregation. And, Lord, that we might hear even Moses at prayer. O God, bless us this morning. Give us to that end words that must and shall prevail. Give us those prevailing words, we pray. We ask in our Savior's name. Amen. You ever considered how your prayer life is doing? You ever think over and take a close examination at the sort of things that you bring before God? When you get into that quiet place, into that little room, that time with the Lord. You know, men and women, young people, there are prayers that are found in God's Word from which we can learn what to offer when we come before the throne of grace, even in prayer. Not least in the passage that is before us this morning. We have learned that Moses was one who desired to meet with God. That's why he took the tent of the congregation out of the midst of the camp and he was to pitch it afar off. And doing so, he, while he could not pray in the basis of the obedience of Israel to the law because they hadn't, they had broken the law of God, they had committed idolatry, worshipping the golden calf. Yet he could plead the grace of God. And what we have before us is maybe, maybe the best petition that man ever offered before God recorded in the Scriptures. Moses wasn't satisfied, you see, with the fact that they would be given the land. But the presence of the Lord God would not go with them. He would not be content with an angel being granted instead. And thus really the remainder of chapter 33 of Exodus gives us an insight into Moses' continuing intercession for the people. He's motivated by the grace of God. He's motivated by also his love for the nation of Israel. And he presents an earnest petition to God for himself and for that people. If I can quote to you A.W. Pink. A.W. Pink is a commentator of the Scriptures Parts of them anyway. And he says this. Here we behold the typical mediator prevailing in his intercession for a sinful people. Not only in averting the wrath of God, but in securing his continued presence in their midst. The interesting detail is that even though Moses wasn't happy or content with the arrangement that God was not going to go up with them in their midst, but rather an angel, that that's not the first petition that he raises. And so I want us to look just at this prayer this morning, noting the various parts of it, because it's something that's worth considering, as God's people should pray. In these days. Want you notice firstly his pathway. You see the first thing that he does is pray for himself. He prays for himself. Verse 12 and 13. If you look at it. Moses said unto the Lord. See thou sayest unto me. Bring up this people. 
and thou hast not let me know what thou, whom thou shalt wilt send with me, yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. The first petition, that we should examine concerns the way before him. Now, not merely being shown the way to Canaan, and that was important, not, way, not, not only being shown the way to lead Israel, and God called him to do that, and that was important, but even the very pathway for his own life. That's what he's touching on here. His request is that God would teach him his pathway. And that is something that is important, men and women. If there is one thing that we need to know in these days and in life in general, it's God's way. God's way. And that applies to the the, the teenager going through the studies and going towards careers and marriage and all of that. That applies to the adult every day. We need to know God's way. We can learn many things. Never before has there been so much knowledge so easily accessible. Not all of it's good, of course, but it's easily accessible. But in all our learning, never neglect the greatest learning of all, and that is God's way. There are those maybe before me, you need to start by knowing about God's way of salvation. That's where you start. And men and women, you'll find it from Genesis to Revelation. Right throughout this book, God's word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our pathway, our path. And you will find the way of God's salvation in the Scriptures. God is able to show you by His Spirit how you can be saved. That's where you start. It's in His Word. It's not in works. But it's all of God's grace. It's able to reach you, the sinner. Wherever you are, whatever state that finds you in today, whatever sin that you're reveling in, God's grace is able to reach you where you are. It's able to lift you. And he's able to put you on that solid foundation, which is Jesus Christ. But knowing the pathway of God's salvation, coming by simple faith and accepting Christ as your Savior, you then need to know the pathway for your Christian life after that. You see, when God saves us, he doesn't just give us an escape out of hell. It's the pathway of life that follows. He enables his children to live for him. Neglecting to know the pathway of life will be both tragic for the soul eternally lost in hell, but also as it has been for many, it will mean a wasted life on this earth. This world is at enmity with God. Therein lies the cause of much so much trouble. If this world lived God's way according as he is revealed in his word, then what a different world we will be living in. But that's not so. The world is an enemy to God. It should interest us to note the manner in which Moses sought to know God's pathway. He prefaced his petition by saying in verse 13, Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight... Moses approached God in great humility. He's very conscious that Israel had sinned. Israel had turned away from God. They had turned to the golden calf. He was aware of God's wrath and anger against them. But you know, he also recognized his own lowliness before the Lord. 
He's coming before the Lord God of heaven and of earth. And so we can do none else than seek his grace. And you know, men and women, that's the only way in which any one of us ought to approach God and make our petitions known unto him. It's in humility. He is in heaven. We are on earth. We are mere creatures of the dust. He is our great creator. He is the only true and living God. And you know, the psalmist knew that was the way to obtain direction from the Lord. You think of Psalm 25. Psalm 25 and the words of verse 9. It simply says this, The meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his way. And the record of the scriptures is that Moses was the meekest man that ever lived on the face of the earth. He came in meekness. He came in humility. He came pleading the grace of God. Moses needed to know the pathway ahead. And he went to the right place to learn it. You want to know God's way for our life or your life, then we need to ask God to show us. He is the the, the one who knows the end from the beginning. He's the sovereign God. He knows all things. It will mean being found in his word. For it in his word it is that we will discover his way for our lives. Therefore, if there is that desire in your heart to know that good and that perfect and that acceptable will of God, then you will pray like the psalmist, Lord, open mine eyes. Show me thy way. And that we might learn it and we might understand it. What follows after that is asking the Lord to enable us to live according to that way. Young person, older man or woman, make sure you're in the center of God's will. That's where you want to be. You see, I want you to notice the incentive that there was for Moses here in verse 13. I want you to notice this very carefully. He says, Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee. That I may know thee. I say we need to look at that carefully because it doesn't mean, I don't want you to get the impression that Moses didn't know God. He did know God. God already met with him at the burning bush in the backside of the desert. God had already called him unto himself. God had already called him to lead his people out of Egypt. But Moses still wanted to know God and to know him more deeply. And it is that very truth that I want to bring out to you. You see, it's similar to what the Apostle Paul's desire was. Apostle Paul, in the book of Philippians, uh, chapter 3, he's an older man now, he's a great old servant of the Lord, he's seen much done, but he comes and he says, in the words of verse 10, to this church, he says, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, that I may know him. That's the same as what Moses here has been praying. The more these men knew God, the more they wanted to know him deeply. They wanted to know him more. And surely... It was something that each of us should have the desire for. No matter how long you're on the road with the Lord, no matter how long you're saved, you'll desire to know God more. What is it to know God as in this petition of Moses? To know can mean different things. People use the word uh, very readily today to mean they have an awareness of something. 
I know where that person lives. Well, that's an awareness of a very simplest kind of knowledge. You have an idea where that person lives that you're talking about. And you know there are people like that with God. Where God is concerned, as is noted in Romans chapter 1. They're aware of their guilt before God, not because they know Him in a personal manner, but they know that He exists. They can look around and they can see the handiwork of God in creation. They know God exists. You know that person exists up the street. You know where they live. That's one way. Then there's a knowledge by description. You know something of that place. Because you've lived there yourself or you've come from that area. I I might mention a a, a town in England or I might mention a little village in Scotland. You might be able to say, I know that place. I just used to live 30 miles from it. And there's a knowledge by experience. There are people who also have that type of knowledge when it comes to God. They're able to study God's word. They're able to read it. They're able to answer things about God's character, not because they are saved, but merely because of their intellect. They're studious. They have a good intellect. And then, men and women, there's a knowledge by experience, not by description, but by experience. Maybe a person you really know because you have worked with them. They've been a workmate for years. Or they've been a, a close friend for a long time. Uh, and you know by experience something about them. That's the better knowledge than any of the previous knowledges. To know God, not merely that he exists, not even because of his characteristics or his attributes that you can read about in his word, but to be able to say, God, uh, to be able to say I know God from experience. And that's what Paul was able to do. And that's what Moses, the place where he was, he knew God by experience. But listen to me, that still doesn't cut the mustard, if you like, where this plea and petition of Moses is concerned here. It isn't what is in mind in these words. This knowledge always involves the change that we experience when we come to know him. To know God means that we cannot be where we were before. You can't go back to where you were before. You know more about him. It is to be drawn into that deeper fellowship. And that's what Moses wanted. He knew God existed. He had the experiences of that. But he entreated God that he might know him a way that would change who he was. That would transform what he would do. That I may know thee. It was a knowledge that would be have an impact on every part of his life and being. And the only one who can do that for us is God himself. And I ask, is that your desire? Is that your prayer even this morning that I may know him? Do you point more, uh, put more uh, to that petition and you're panting after him? Oh, that we will be able to say like the Shulamite. You read about the Shulamite in the Song of Solomon. And in chapter uh, 3 and verse 2 she says this, I will rise now. I will seek him whom my soul loveth. Loveth. Whom my soul loveth. Is that our desire? pathway and I may know thee what about as we consider Moses petition his presence see that's what he prayed for as well 
Losing God's presence was for Israel the worst outcome. No angel would ever compensate for that loss. And so Moses brings this petition to the Lord. You'll notice his plea in verse 12. Moses said unto the Lord, See thou sayest unto me, bring up this people, and thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast also found grace in my sight. Thou hast let me know, thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Moses didn't know the specifics of what God meant when he stated he would send an angel. But you know, dear people, there's more than that request and meets the eye that is on the surface there. The response that God gives tells us that. And the response that God gives indicates that he knew what Moses really wanted was for his presence to go with them. God knows our hearts. We can't hide our hearts from the Lord. God knows our hearts, men and women, even when our words and prayer don't make it clear. God knows our hearts. And Moses wasn't satisfied with an angel as a substitute. He wanted God's presence. And God knew that from this petition. And that can be seen in the priority. Look at verse 15. He said unto him, If, you see, the answer, the response that God gives to his petition is in verse 14. He said, My presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. That's why we can understand there was more to that request in verse uh, 12 than meets the eye. But you notice the priority in verse 15. He said unto him, If thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. We looked at that as a motto text. In bygone days, so important was this to Moses that he said, if God's presence didn't go with them, then he didn't want to move. That's how much he valued his presence. Just consider for a moment what Moses was saying. Ask yourself, where were the people at this time? I'll tell you where they were. They were in a dry, barren, desert valley at the foot of Mount Sinai. Where were they going? Where was the promise? It was the land of Canaan. That land full of milk and honey. That's what God had promised to them four centuries earlier. Yet Moses is saying, God, I'd rather stay here in the desert than go to Canaan if you do, if you do not go with us. You see the priority? The priority of Moses is Certainly not noted in the world or in many people today. The world, instead of wanting God's presence, they disdain it. They don't want God in anything. They want God in the schools. If they can do it, they could get God out of the courtrooms. They don't want God in society. Is there any any man would disagree with me in that? The world does not want God. They don't want to seek God. People do what our first parents did back in the garden. What did they do when they sinned? They sought to hide themselves from the presence of God. But any distaste about God's presence is only an admission of wickedness. The greatest illustration, of course, is seen not at Eden, but in Calvary. They so disdained the presence of Christ that they wanted to do away with him. 
And those who despise God's presence will one day get what they long for. For there's no presence of God in hell. He's not there. But I wonder as God's people, do we desire the presence of God as we really ought? Is it our priority? Or do we just become accustomed to the, the, the thinking of the world? We might launch into many a thing, many a plan, but the question about God's presence, is it there? I can use illustrations in our own family circles that I have relatives and they moved house and they moved to the land of Scotland. The last thing they asked themselves was, where am I going to worship? That is until the children came along. And they come back again. The last question is about God's presence. So often we think it's better to have the milk and the honey than to have God. But we should be careful not to go in any direction unless we are sure we have God's presence with us. Young people, don't go to any place unless you're assured God's presence will be there. It's like that fellow was professed salvation. He ended up in a nightclub and the boy came over to him and he says, what are you doing here? The world you see knew the difference. They knew he shouldn't have been there. Moses had been long enough with God that he understood the importance of this. And he knew Israel enough to know how necessary that God's presence was to be with them. If God's presence wasn't with them, they were in trouble. Is it the presence of God that gives us so many blessings? Moses considers here the blessings that flow from it. I don't know why you've noticed this or not. Look at the confirmation that it would come from it. Verse 16. For wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people. Keeps from mentioning that. Lord, they're, they're not my people. They're your people. That I and thy people have found grace in thy sight. Is it not that thou goest with us? You see, if the Lord's presence was with them, it was confirmation. His presence confirmed that they had found grace in his sight, that they had been forgiven, that they had been accepted by God. Isn't that truth experienced in salvation itself? God's presence with us by the indwelling Spirit confirms that we are his. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Take it from the Scriptures. It says, but ye are not in the flesh, Paul's writing to the people of God, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. He's a counterfeit. There's confirmation that you are saved today if God's Spirit dwells within your heart, that God's Spirit bears witness with our spirits that we are the people of God. Confirmation. Moses praying, Lord, it'll confirm that we have found grace in thy sight of thy presence as well as. There's the first thing. Something else. They would be identified as being God's people if his presence went with them. Look at verse 16 again. So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the earth, from, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. The word separated there can be translated distinguished. It'll be that which distinguishes us from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. 
It would distinguish them from the other nations. So God's presence assures us personally that we are His. It also shows us shows publicly to others that we are God's people. We ought to live our lives in a manner which shows it is evident God's presence abides with us. And then there's also a word in verse 14, which we should note as well. He said, My presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. I'll give thee rest. It refers to Canaan. It would be a rest for the people of God, a rest from their toil, a rest from their labors and their wilderness wanderings. They would be able to settle down. I'll give thee rest, God says. If you turn over to Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, there's a greater rest spoken about here. Just the opening part of that chapter. Look at the words of verse 9. It says, There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. There, there, There remaineth therefore a Sabbath to the people of God. Verse 1. Let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest... Any of you should seem seem to come short of it. The greater rest that's spoken of there is speaking about that which salvation gives us in heaven. There therefore remaineth the rest for the people of God. The day is coming, child of God, you see, every one of God's people, we shall see the end of our toilsome journey and pilgrim journey down here on earth and we'll enter into that eternal rest. Heaven itself. Christ has purchased and prepared for us. Are you sure of it? Do you long for it? Amidst the toils of this world? That rest that God gives. God's presence, you see here, was promised, verse 14, as I've already read to you, through prayer, Moses gained the promise of God's presence back again. He obtained the greatest blessing Israel could have. I wonder, does that not inspire each one of us to pray? When we have promises like Jeremiah 33 and 3, Call unto me and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. There's an incentive. To petition the throne of God. This promise of God's presence was on the basis of God's grace. They didn't deserve it because of their sin. So it was all of God's grace that his presence would go with them. Verse 17, the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. We don't deserve it either, men and but we covet the presence of God with us in all that we do, in all that we do with this congregation, in all we do with the church and the work of God here. We need God's presence. I, 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 can't, uh, I, I can't fail to bring out repetition every time I stand in this pulpit. Lord, we need thy presence this morning. 
It is repetition, I know that. But we need God's presence. And I believe we've known God's presence. We've had God's presence in that mission, that tent mission. In the presence of the Lord, there's fullness of joy. Pleasures at his right hand. Let me show you finally here this person. Third petition, so he's prayed for Lord, you've got to show me the pathway. And, and Lord, we need your presence. As I said to you, here's we pointers, good pointers for to bring personally to the throne of grace in our lives. But he prays for his person. Has to do with the glory of God, you see. And here's a spiritual desire. Look at the words of verse 18. He said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. Now Moses has done well. God has already answered great prayers for him here. Great petitions for him. But he goes on further. And immediately we perceive that's not the sort of prayer that many people would pray. Our requests, mostly, mostly would be in terms of the material maybe or, or, or the physical realm. But Moses prayed in terms of the spiritual realm. He had a great longing to know more about God. Like Paul did as we've already stated. Or like Jacob, you remember Jacob as he wrestled with the angel and he would not let the angel go uh, uh, until he blessed him and he wanted to know his name. Genesis chapter 32 uh, and verse 29, I'll just read it to you. Jacob asked him and said, tell me I pray thee thy name. And he said, wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And they blessed him there. He blessed him there. I think also the psalmist who cried, As a part panteth after the water brooks, then so my soul panteth after thee, O God. This was a prayer that glorified God. He wanted God to display his glory because he's glorious and it glorified God in that it was a large request. It honors God, you know, when we desire great things from him, as long as, of course, that those things are not for selfish reasons. It honors God. We're, we're guilty of being a wee bit puny in our praying at times. We should bring the large petitions. Let me bring a little... Uh, Line or two that, that someone penned. He says, Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. In fact, there's a hymn. You know the specific answer in verse 19. He said, I will make all thy, my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God would show him his glory in a threefold way by his goodness. By his greatness, by his grace. The goodness of God would pass before him. The greatness of God would be proclaimed in God's name. And the grace of God would be provided. I will be gracious. You see, he could not see God face to face, for no man can see God and live. Such is the glory of God. Oh, man and woman, I think we need to get a hold of this. I think we need to get a hold of really who God is. If we get a, a hold of who God really is, our worship will be transformed. Our walk will be transformed. We're not coming just before a body. As is the language of many modernists today. 
are coming before God. Almighty God, the greatness of God, the goodness of God. And we cannot see God face to face, for no man will live. He would not see all his glory, but he would see the goodness of God pass before him. For God is abundant in goodness, displayed best of all, of course, in the person of Christ. For he has done all things well. The greatness of God is seen in his name. The Lord God said to Moses at the bush, I am that I am. It's an incommunicable, it cannot be communicated, as I'm trying to say to others. It is a name that is unique. It's given to none other. It describes God, the greatest of all. It's the meaning of Jehovah. I am that I am. What grace that he should reveal himself to sinful mankind and favor them with his wonderful plan of salvation. You think there just of the significant detail that we see. Moses could only see a partial view of God's glory. Verse 21 And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and I shall stand upon a rock. Shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in the cleft of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand, while I pass by. He only would see a partial part of that glory. You in heaven will see it all. John says, and 1 John 3 and 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Doth not appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall see him as he is. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Not wonderful. Moses could not endure a full sight of God's glory. Maybe I'll bring it into perspective when I remind you of the coming of Christ and the effect it will have upon the Antichrist. You see, Second Thessalonians 2 and 8 says this, And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. The very final Antichrist will be destroyed by the brightness of the glory of the Lord's coming. And so God puts measures in place that would protect Moses. You see the place where he puts in verse 21. Behold, there's a place by me. He'd put him in the cleft of the rock. He would cover him. A place by me, thou shalt stand upon a rock. That's Christ. He's in a place by me. He's at the Father's right hand. He's described in the scriptures as the rock. He's the rock of my salvation. And that rock is the foundation of our salvation. We must stand on Christ, that solid rock, or else we will perish. Everything else is sinking sand. That cleft 
Does that not remind us of the wounded side of the Christ of God that he endured there on Calvary when he shed his precious blood for our salvation? Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. You see, Moses didn't have to put himself in the cleft of the rock. God put him there. There's the power of God's salvation. You can't save yourself. God can do that saving work even this morning, for he's the power to save. Oh, that you sinner, if you're not saved, that you might see the person of Christ as never before. Not a preacher, not a, a, a denomination or a church, but that you would see Christ as never before and be saved. You'll be standing on that rock, resting, depending, by faith in the finished work of Calvary's cross, what Christ endured there. What Moses saw was amazing. You know it was unique. That's why I've said to you it's probably one of the greatest petitions that we have recorded in the scriptures of a man praying to God. But yet it cannot be compared to the revelation that God gave us in Christ Jesus. I want to close just with this verse. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, John says. And we beheld his glory. The glory has of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He says Christ. Now we see him. And there's a petition to bring in that quiet time, Lord, show me thy way. Lord, I want to know thy presence. Lord, I want to see Christ in a greater measure. May the Lord bless us. May the Lord bless his word, even to our hearts this morning, for his only name's sake. 572, I'll just change our position in closing. 572. A wonderful Savior is Jesus, my Lord. A wonderful Savior to me. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. Rivers of pleasure I see. We'll, uh, we'll sing verses 1 and 2. 1 and 2. And verse 4 as well. 1, 2 and 4. 572. Let's just stand as we sing it.
Lord, we thank that we can sing well of a wonderful Savior as Jesus, my Lord. Thank the Lord for each one that can sing that as a word of testimony. We're hiding in the cleft of that rock, that riven side, riven for sinners such as we. Praise the Lord for that which we've learned even this morning from Moses' prayer. Lord, we pray thou would show us thy way, that we might know thee. And, O God, uh, that thou would, Lord, give us thy presence in all that we seek to do. Lord, we pray thy presence will go with us. But, O, that we might, Lord, see the person of Christ. Lord, show us more of our Savior. We we, we confess, Lord, we we, we don't know very much. Lord, we're always learning. Lord, help us to ascend up the heights of the mountainside with God. Speak to those who are yet not seen. Bring them to Christ. Part us now with thy blessing. Lord, give us a good Sabbath and continue with us and bless us again tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.